Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine, with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Every other week, we sit down with the stars of the design world to learn about their journey, where they are now, how they got here, and what they've learned along the way. Together, we'll get inspired, hear behind-the-scenes stories about some of the world's most notable hospitality projects, hear the ups and downs of creating a business, and dive headfirst into all things design. From architects and designers to hoteliers and entrepreneurs, and all of the multifaceted talents in between, join me to meet the passionate people who make up this industry. Sometimes you do things and it doesn't work out as you planned. And so you've got to turn around and go, well, how do I fix this? You know, well, because it's important we get this right, because this is the reason people come to Vegas. This is what is unique about Vegas, is this thing, this tiny little thing, but they're going to go back to wherever they come from and say, I've never seen anything like that. Hi, I'm here with Ross Mollison. So nice to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really excited to be here. Well, thanks. Okay, so we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I grew up in a suburban area there and uh, worked there for um, a lot of my career before uh, starting to produce and uh, promote shows in America in around the year 2000. Amazing. And what were you like as a kid? I loved music. I, I played a, a variety of musical instruments and I loved uh, singing and I loved uh, uh, going to the circus, which is how I kind of got involved in the whole thing because I had neighbours when I was about five years old next door who loved the circus, who would drag my family off with theirs to see the circus. And I just loved live entertainment. And, you know, when I was at school, I loved being in plays and musicals. And then when I went to college, I was in the musicals and produced musicals and then started producing shows and touring Australia with them and stuff like that. That's great. Was there one play or musical that, you know, you, you loved or really remembered from early on from high school or college? I mean, it's, it's bizarre to say, but... Uh, I really loved the Mercado when I was 15 by Gilbert and Sullivan. And then when I was at college, I really loved Stephen Sondheim. And I was part of a group that produced the Australian premiere of Anyone Can Whistle, this Stephen Sondheim musical that's not very well known. It only did six performances on Broadway. And I just loved Sondheim. I thought he was such a genius. And uh, many years later, he came, when he, I got to meet him a few times, he came to my shows and stuff. That was a big thrill. Uh, but then ultimately, I was really into musicals during that period, and I, I just thought West Side Story was the best musical ever 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 written. And we produced a version of that at, when I was at college, which was just incredible. Amazing. And so, what did you study in college? Uh, economics. Oh. I, I took. I took, uh, I think it was six or seven years to do a three-year degree because most of the time I was in a theatre or touring Australia with a show. But eventually I just couldn't do it to my parents. They had to finish the damn degree. So, uh, And, I mean, it's been, it's always good to know that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But, yeah, I just felt bad in my parents and education. Everything was so important to them. So I ended up, you know, really, really struggling because that one year I never didn't go to a lecture all year. Um, but finally I ended up getting really good marks when I focused on it. Okay. Economics was my hardest 
hardest subject. At it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. It was really it was hard. hard. <laughs> um, and so you said after college you went and you toured. Oh well, yeah, we we created a little children's theatre company and we put shows on in Melbourne and in Sydney and Adelaide, and then we had a caravan and trucks and garbage like a circus and around regional areas and put little children's shows on, which was really, really fun. When did you start Spiegel World, your company? Spiegel World started uh, in 2005. We put our first shows on in New York in 2006, and uh, that was at the former Pier 17. It's been torn down and rebuilt as the new Pier 17, but basically this was when it was a really stinky old pier. Uh, on the East River under the Brooklyn Bridge. And, uh, yeah, that was our first season, which we did two months in 2006. And then we did three years in New York, 2006, 7, 8, until the uh, financial crisis came and clobbered us. And what did you want to create with Spiegel World? What was your, you know, your, what what was your hope for it? It was always, it was always uh, based on this super, intimate comedic circus concept in a very beautiful historic venue combined with incredible hospitality, incredible food and beverage. Um, And, you know, we always had that ambition. When we started uh, our hospitality, the food side of it wasn't so good. On our opening night, uh, Sasha Petrask, who was the... um, really one of the leaders of the resurgence of cocktails in New York and globally um, came and did cocktails for our opening night. He created that absinthe cocktail for our first ever performance. So we, we did have, you know, aspirations to great cocktails back then, but it, it's it's taken us a few years to really get to the levels that we're really excited about with Super Frico and, and our, our cocktail program now. Got it. And before we get there, you, you're, the first one that you debuted was Absinthe, right, in 2006. What was the reception of that? You know, did people fall in love with it? What, you know, did they, what was kind of the the feedback that you received from the first one? I mean, we, we pretty much, we're, we're on a pier in the Pier 17, which is South Street Seaport. Anybody who knows New York knows that anyone who lives there just would prefer to swoon Roth to Richland go there. It's just horrible. It's it's like a, it was a beacon for tourists who knew no better. And we walked down and found this pier and we went, oh, my God, it's this horrible old mall, which is all empty and got these terrible tendencies in it. But we're looking at Dumbo and we're right under the Brooklyn Bridge and there's a Statue of Liberty and we're in the East River. This is like the most gorgeous place in Manhattan. But because of that, when we went on sale, nobody bought a ticket. It was just a disaster. And so we just stacked it with everyone we knew. And, I mean, after the first three days, it sold every ticket. It just went insane. Um, and that was super exciting. You know, sometimes, like in my, in my business, every now and then you do something that's just crazy great and it sells every ticket. And that was one of those experiences. Yeah. And what was the show about? It, it's about celebrating the circus and burlesque and just the whole human condition. It's just coming and watching people who do these extraordinarily 
fantastic and unexpected things. And they're like doing them on a stage the size of your dining room table. And you're just kind of sexy and exciting and beautiful and unexpected. And, you know, we, back then we performed in a, a real Belgian Spiegel tent, a very old one. Um, we used to say it was the one Marlena Dietrich performed in, but that was probably artistic license. Um, but it, it was this beautiful old space that's all made of um, um, wood and brass and velvet and stained glass and you just walk into this space and you're just like what the hell is this yeah it's really exciting and it's it's got a built a bar built into it so you know they were they were popular around the the turn of the last century yeah and they would tour through europe and they'd come to town and every piece could be carried by one incredibly strong dutchman or belgian man and they would build this whole thing in a matter of a day and then everybody would come out in the town and go to a dance there and there'd be a band or a mechanical organ would play. And still to this day, there's places you can go in Europe and see them operate as the way they used to operate then. That's amazing. And what, maybe you said it, but you, you know, you went to school and you were born in Melbourne. Um, what made you come to the States? Like what, what drew you to New York? Was it, Broadway, was it just the possibility of what you could do there? I mean, I when I was 15, my parents came to America and bought a recreational vehicle and drove around the country for nine months. And so I, my brother and I joined them for like four months and just dotted around the place. And then the rest of the time I went to high school in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And so uh, the touch in high school. Huh. And like I went to an all boys, pretty strict kind of Presbyterian school in Melbourne. And then all of a sudden I'm in an American high school. You know, I, I just had the best six months of my life. It was just insane. And I just fell in love with America through that experience. And, and, and so, you know, I was anxious to get back and I came back as an adult and, and started just regularly coming to New York and, I remember coming and staying when the Paramount Hotel had just opened and just being like, what the fuck is this? This is just – I was just the coolest place I could possibly imagine. And uh, and then going to see like three shows a, a day and um, and getting out and just experiencing New York. Always loved New York. Always wanted to live here desperately. Love it, love it. Okay, so you're in New York. You have a couple of good years um, and then the – market kills you what do you do next um well fortunately we've gone to miami and thrown the show up on a beach down there at south <laughs> beach uh at collins park which is just near uh, the w was just being built at the time right. we were there um so that kind of places between the w and the sea tie there and we did it with andre belas and the raleigh hotel which he owned at the time and he did all the food side of it and the cocktails so they were all fabulous and again we we threw this thing open on miami beach and um it it it, it was just a disaster no one came and then you know we conked the hell out of it and then like within a week it just went crazy and everybody in miami came including a guy called jeff sofa who was in the process of remodeling the fontainebleau hotel on south beach 
and he wanted a show for his new casino he was building in Las Vegas, the Fontainebleau. And so we did a deal with him and we were ready to open the uh, Fontainebleau in 2009 when that opened in Vegas. Unfortunately, he was clobbered by the financial crisis as well, ultimately, and that project went bankrupt. Ironically, I just went to the opening night of Jeff's Fontainebleau because he lost it and then bought it back again yeah. and just opened it a few weeks ago. And um, so that is the definition of relentless. A hundred percent. And so then what did you do after that happened? The, were you then connected with Vegas and you wanted to try something there? Yeah, I was desperately connected. We, we desperately wanted to be in Vegas. Um, we were totally broke, um, just had a long list of people I owed money to and went and just begged, you know, met with a Venetian, uh, tried to get into MGM, got into Caesars, and ultimately ended up with this guy, fantastic guy, who's the regional president of Caesars Entertainment called Gary Selesna. And he'd actually been from New Jersey himself and was a lover of New York and pizza and kind of a journalist PR guy who'd just fallen into managing casinos but really got this kind of idea we were doing. And he said, yeah, okay, I'll give you a shot and gave us a spot at Caesar's Palace to put it in there. Um, but he was the only one who really believed in it. All the other executives at Caesar's were just like, this is what are you thinking? This is going to be a disaster. So, and so was it an intimate theatre at Caesar's, or did you have to create that intimacy? Yeah. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah, we built a Spiegel tent right in front of Caesar's Palace. We took oh. one of these old wooden tents from Belgium, and this enormous fight ensued with the fire department chief. And she just said, like, this, you said this was a tent. This is not a tent. It's a fucking building. And I'm like, it's a, like, it's a sprinkle tent. I told you in the plans and everything. And she said, you submitted the plans and we reviewed it and we approved it. So you can have this thing up for six months. But then you pull this thing down and you never bring it back to Vegas again. And that's what I've committed to, only six months. So we, we opened it, this incredible Spiegel tent, um, was about 300 seats, and we built this fantastic beer garden around it, and off we went. And, you know, after six months, it was starting to bite. It was starting to be a success, but the locals of Vegas really loved it. And, um, and But we had to pull it down. So, you know, I... Pulled it down, and I worked out. I just had this idea that if we Caesar's hated the beer garden, it was like you know they, I call it uh, Brooklyn Brooklyn found object bar junkyard kind of beer garden we had, and they just loathed it. Everybody else loved it, but they used to call it a West Virginia junkyard. And I said to them, well, what if I make the tent white on the outside and I put all the junk from the beer garden on the inside? And they said, yeah, if you do that, you can stay. Hmm. So that's what we did. And we rebuilt, we built a new temporary structure that we permitted it as a permanent venue with uh, life safety, um, insulation, everything you needed to have a permanent building, but we built it out of the tent which is incredibly stressful. <laughs> it yeah. was a hard period of my life. But 
ultimately that tent's still there now, um, you know, 13 years later. Yeah. And how long did that take you? We did it in two weeks. But it was pretty it was pretty rough when it opened. <laughs> and then it took us about a year to get all the permits in place. But you know, it was that's the great thing about 2011, 2012, because of the financial crisis, nobody was doing anything in Vegas. Right. It was just like you're opening a show in Vegas. Are you crazy? It was like Vegas was at a crossroads. It could it could go or it could go up. You know, it's not like now where there's all this investment and all this, you know, really positive attitude to the whole thing. So I think that was also part of our success is just opening at that period where nothing else was happening and people are like, you t- you're taking a punt on Vegas? Are you crazy? And the locals loved us for it. So that was good. Well, now look at it, how much Vegas has grown and come back. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay, so you're there. How did you continue to evolve and expand your portfolio and continue to grow Spiegel World to what it is today? Um, well, I mean, we, we, we had the bar at Caesars. It wasn't very good, but we really loved this idea of getting back to what we started in New York where we had a restaurant there in our third year. And, uh, and we wanted, so we wanted this idea of a restaurant and a show and the whole thing together. At the same time, the Cosmopolitan had just opened and there's this leader of the Cosmopolitan man, a guy called John Arnold, who was just fascinated by the whole idea of live entertainment, food and beverage. And we really, you know, we, we really had a meeting of the minds as to how this would work, which ultimately fell apart. It was incredibly difficult to do, but we opened a thing called Rose Rabbit Lie in 2013, which was this extraordinary restaurant and theatre complex, which was just way too ambitious for its time, and uh, but was fantastic. You know, if everybody who said they'd been there actually had been there, it would still be running. But you know, again, we learned so much about design and 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 how these things can interrelate. We had walls going up and down so you could see through the restaurant into the theatre. We designed the theatre. It's an incredibly compromised space. It only only had uh, 14 feet of head height, so it's hard to do live entertainment in that. But, you know, the whole design is a critical part to the whole thing and how that all work. Yeah. And so... The cool thing that I loved about that space is that you were entertained throughout the night, right? Like you had different performances pop up as you're eating. So it kind of, it really combined entertainment and, and the restaurant. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's, it's, it's a subtle difference to, I think the consumer way, but when, to me, it's an incredibly important difference that when you go to a lot of hospitality oriented live entertainment, it's just, Okay, it's what I call stop and watch where the lights go down and they're sitting there eating your dinner, having a nice time, and then everybody shut up and this guy's going to get up and pretend to be Frank Sinatra for a couple hours and you're going to have to just watch all this garbage. And you're just like, you know, come on, man. Like, like so when we designed ours, I said, right, we really we really want it to be uh, take it or leave it. If, you, if you're not into it, you can just go, yeah, yeah, leave us alone and they keep on going by. But it creates an, an environment in the restaurant that's really fantastic as well, which, you know, is unexpected. And that leads to a delight and that leads to a fun as opposed to just, oh, my God, you know, 
I, we're going to have to watch this thing for the next 30 minutes. I prefer to kill myself. I didn't come to Vegas to do this. Exactly. Um, okay, so that that ran a couple of years, though, didn't it, Rose Rabbit Lie? Uh, Rose Rabbit Lie, the, the theatre side of it closed down, and then the property was sold. Okay. We left the property. The restaurant continued running for quite a few years. Then the property came back to us and asked us to do a show there with its new owners, Blackstone. And so we put a show into the theatre space. Then during COVID, the restaurant closed down and the, we opened Super Frico in the restaurant. So we basically went back to having the whole space with Super Frico and uh, a show next door called Opium. Okay, so what were those two? What did you want to create there? And how did you... How did you come up with these concepts too? Like, you know, how do you, cause you mix really interesting things together and people and, you know, different genres. So I don't know if people have been to one of your shows, but talk about how you create those as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a process of putting a diverse group of people together from we like we, as part of our process, we brought all our design in house. So we have in house art direction, architecture, uh, mixology, uh, executive chef and food design and restaurant design. And then we go out and we uh, expand that with different designers. So right now we're doing a, a disco experience, which will have a new diner in it. We'll have a show and a restaurant and um, I don't know what it is, three or four bars and you know, we brought in like, okay, well, we need a really theatrical designer to help us with this show because it's nobody's done a show like this before. So we brought in a guy called David Zim from a Broadway Tony Award winning guy uh, to help us design that. Um, and then, you know, we'll work like in Atlantic City. We worked, uh, you know, with other Broadway designers to come in and help us do the set design there. And so the, the process is very much about us really deciding on what we want to do and then developing a unique space for that and then making sure we've got the creatives, you know, like just having the mixologists sit around while you're doing set design or restaurant design or theatre design, you know, and trying to create a space that really doesn't look like anything else um, and doesn't feel and operate like anything else. It's, it's, about, it's about designing something that is designed to operate. It's not like I remember arguing with the designers of Rose Robert Lie. I said, look, I just hate this. And, and, the, and the head of this agency said to me, well, don't worry about it. You know, on opening night, we leave and you can do whatever you want with the space. And, and I was like, yeah, but we've spent all the budget. And A and B, it's not about submitting something to go in fucking architectural digest, so you, you know, like to look gorgeous. It's about how do people feel when they come in there, you know? And you, like so much of what is designed now, I feel, is not about the experience after it opens. Um, how do you feel when you're actually in that space? And it's just like I call it Vegas Lux, for instance. It's just like, well, 
put more marble in. No, we need more gold. You know, like, and it's just totally undifferentiated. Because what could be more beautiful than the wind? Well, the font of blue is going to be more beautiful. Oh, but then resorts world's more beautiful. But maybe the cosmo, the chandelier bar is more beautiful. But it's all just beautiful, but it doesn't really create an intimate experience for people beyond that. And so, yeah, how do we create the ideas you started with? I'm going down a rabbit hole here. I get that. And so, and each one is different, right? Each one that you do has a different story and a different, you know, act and things. Do you switch it up as they get, you know, throughout their their life quote unquote yeah yeah i mean there's a uh there's a david merrick who was a broadway uh, producer's quote was he he was like uh, he used to say uh, uh the contract is signed let the negotiation begin and for us it's a bit like the thing is built you know let the development begin like as soon as we've opened it we're now instantly thinking about okay how can we keep developing this? How can we keep developing the acts and the show? Uh, and how can we keep, um, you know, what are the things that we can keep adding and changing to this? Because we find we get enormous repeat visitation. And it's so lovely when people come back and see the show and they go, oh, my God, it was just better than it's ever been. So, you know, we're constantly, constantly iterating on everything from the cocktails to the bars to the bar design to the... You know, right now for our ski lodge, we're just designing a snowmobile chandelier to go into our little PDR room, you know, and, and kind of stuff we make ourselves rather than buy. We make all the sconces ourselves. We make like the table lamps are all pine trees with bras in them like you see at a stupid ski resort, except people keep stealing our tiny little bras, which, <laughs> which is I like... glue those on. <laughs> we are, we do. They still peel them off. Um, anyway, um, but you know, it's just like the stupidity of that. You know, when you go up in a ski lift and you see that, who thought that was funny enough? Like, I don't even think it's very funny. It's just like a stupid idea. Like, I guess we'll design a stupid idea where other people won't. Yeah. And how has that? How has your guest changed since you started Absinthe in New York to you know what you're producing now in Vegas? Or have they? Oh, that's a good question. I I, 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 don't know if they have. I feel, I feel very, a very similar vibe from like we've just opened a show last year in uh, Atlantic City, and it feels a similar vibe there to it did in New York in two thousand six. You know that are people who are just kind of tired of sitting in a 100-year-old theatre in a tiny seat for three and a half hours waiting for a musical to end, you know, like people who are looking for something more than that. And um, so I think I think it's a, a similar vibe. But, you know, I think maybe, maybe it's got a little younger. I don't know. I think, you know, social media has really helped us promote, it, you know, it, it promotes itself in a way. If you do great live entertainment, you do a great restaurant, you know, it promotes itself, right? And in these spaces where you have the theater and the restaurant, are they separate spaces or do you try to intermingle them or, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, in, in the, the Rose Rabbit Life space we designed in 2013, they're next door to each other. 
but the walls all came down. Right. So the finale of the show in, in uh, Vegas Nocturne, it was called, would be seen by everybody in the restaurant to the extent that they could see it, and then all the walls would go up. And, um, you know, the theatre and restaurant we built in Atlantic City the is based on a space where the 1929 Warner Theatre, the Warner Wonder Theatre of the world used to be, right on the boardwalk at Caesars Palace. And we we recreated the Warner Theatre. It used to be 4,000 seats. Now it's about 400. And we put the restaurant in the dressing rooms. So to actually get to the restaurant, you have to go um, through the stage door. And so, so, but then all the artists who are performing in the show in the theatre are all coming from their dressing rooms through the restaurant to get to the theatre. So that's where a lot of interaction happens with guests dining in the restaurant. And, um, you know, the whole thing is it, it's, it's got what we call the third layer, which is after we get it from the contractors, it's when all our art directors come in and just totally create some a totally unique um, design, and then as part of that, we also bring in original artworks and other artwork we've purchased from. You know, I've got artwork from Australian artists through to we've got this fantastic artwork by an American artist called Randy Palumbo, which is a big um, thing called Marvel that's over the DJ um, stand in the restaurant. So. There's many different layers of the art that people can actually consume or not as they see fit. Got it, got it. And why did you want to go to Atlantic City? I mean, I didn't. I, and I, 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 I was dragged there for, it felt like a decade by Caesars going, come on, let's come down and do something. And I was just going, no, it won't work. No, it won't work. No, it won't work. And then um, during the pandemic, Caesars was sold to this kind of family company from Reno, El Dorado, and these people who bought it were just, you know, the second day they opened, owned it, they called me up and said, hey, we want to have lunch with you. Come to Vegas. You know, it's the middle of a pandemic. I'm going to meet these people who just bought Caesars Palace. I mean, this is crazy. And they just said, look, this is what we want to do. We want to do shows for you. We'd like to do a new show in Vegas. We'd like you to do a show in Atlantic City. We'd like you to do a show in New Orleans with us. And we were closed. Yeah, like, I didn't know. I didn't. We were, I thought, well, I assumed we'd go bankrupt. And, um, and, and here's Anthony Carano and Tom Reed saying, hey, let's do something together. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And then, you know, I kind of got into my Jersey roots Mm-hmm. And started you know, going to Atlantic City a lot, and I, I, I was just there last week. I wanted to go the worst day I could possibly imagine going, so I went the coldest day of the year on a Wednesday night in the middle of winter, and just to go to see our show and our restaurant, and it was just fantastic. And I said, "Wow, you know, this is going to happen. This is this place is going to come back. This place is just it's just getting better and better." and you know, ultimately, I, I, I was sold on it by these new people and their faith in it, and they invested like $400 million in Caesars Palace to make it great in Atlantic City, and part of that investment was what we did with them. And, and so, you know, you go, actually, I mean, this is the greatest geography in New Jersey. 
this is gorgeous beach, and uh, I, I just think it's going to keep it's going to keep going because there's a whole lot of people there looking for something to do. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And now you're also expanding in Vegas too. Don't you have a new show coming up soon? Yeah, so the disco show opens in uh, end of June this year. And the disco show is we're building a theatre that is a 50 by 50 cube of LED. The floor is LED. The walls are LED. The roof is this massive lighting design rig. And it's all about the sound. It's all about the experience of going to a loft party at David Mancuso's loft at 99 Prince Street. 1974 and he was like he was like the chief protagonist in the birth of the he kind of thought of the idea of dragging in his other record player so we could have two record players next to each other so everyone's tripping on the punch he's made he can keep soul mancusa going for three hours by playing two copies of the same record just to keep the beat going it never ended and like you know that whole birth of disco, I just find absolutely fantastic. I know it ends up with the Bee Gees and Saturday Night Fever and Studio 54 and all that stuff, but the start of it, which it, I, I just love the ro- romance around all that. So we've got the bar where you'll experience just getting into this place and then this restaurant where you can go before the show or after the show Um And we're going to do like midnight brunch in this restaurant and just create something that's totally, totally unique, Um, not just for Vegas, but for the world. And I think that's part of what we do is, you know, a lot of a lot of developers, a lot of resorts in Vegas, they go out and say, oh, this is great. You know, this this carbone thing in New York, this is fantastic. It is fantastic. Let's do it in, in Vegas. And. They did a fantastic job of Carbone in Vegas. I think it's been a great restaurant there and everything. But, you know, I love creating things that are unique to Vegas. We get approached every week to do absinthe in London or somewhere, and I'm like, no, absinthe in Vegas. If you want to see that, you have to go to Vegas. Um, we'll do something else in London. Right, right, right. And is the, the disco still have circus moves and all that still involved with it? Yeah, it has circus moves. and It's directed... Uh, by a guy called Stephen Hoggart, who is an incredible show creator uh, from a company called Frantic Assembly in the United Kingdom, who then went on to create Once and create Harry Potter, the state show. And, you know, just an incredible group of creatives we pulled together for this big disco experience. I I just, you know, I couldn't be more excited about it. I think it's going to, I think it's going to really surprise people. Just how much fun it is. That sounds awesome. And it must be so fun for you to work with these different producers and see the different talent. Can you do any circus moves yourself? Um, I mean, not really. <laughs> Just um, wondering. Have you ever picked no, up? Not really. Uh, you know, I, 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 I kind of leave that. I mean, I've just found so many fantastic artists all around the world. I don't really, you know, I don't think my skills are up to it. I can do a three ball juggle, but that's about it. That's it. Got it. Um, I was just curious, but it must be, as as I say, really exciting and inspirational to work with these various producers and talent. And how are you finding new people to work with and to continue to raise the bar and think differently about what, you know, what a circus could be? You know, we have, 
we 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 bought this um, town called Nipton in the Californian, the Mojave Desert, and we've created the Nipton Office of Design or Nude, which is our internal creative team. And so we go out there regularly, at least once a month, and we're always inviting people to come out there and meet with us out there. So like Randy Palumbo, who created that artwork that's in the restaurant in Atlantic City, is also creating an artwork with us for the restaurant in Las Vegas. Um, or a lot of different artists come out there, different creatives come out there, comedians from L.A., and we sit around and we talk about and think about new ideas. And, you know, it's about just creating circumstances where you can create ideas. And then if we have an idea we want to test, we go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we put it on there. So we might go there for a, like we did Atomic Saloon there for a month, which was this fantastic show. It just sold every ticket. When people went crazy. And then we brought it to Vegas and now it's played there for several years. So... Ultimately, we've got many different ways of doing it, but it's about pulling together people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be in the room together and also sometimes lowering the stakes. Like we just did a show for Formula One in Vegas and it, um, um, called Lights Out. We did it for one night. We didn't sell any tickets. We just gave all the tickets away, but we put it on stage and we had – incredibly talented artists go to Nipton for a month and work it all up and put it on stage. And now we go, okay, well, what do we do with that next? Well, maybe we tour it around three or four Formula One races in 2024. You know, like it's it's about sometimes lowering the stakes rather than saying, yeah, we're just going to go and open this show and it's $50 million, which, you know, we've done as well. But sometimes it's nice just to go and spend three hundred grand and test something out and learn where the market sits. Right, right, right. And is there some space or something still that you want to create or do? Well, actually, let's go back because didn't you buy a piece of land that you're turning into something really exciting in terms of like it's the first circus town of sorts? Right, yeah, that's um, that's Nipton, the circus town, uh, yeah, where we do our creative work, and yeah, that that is an enormous project for us, yeah. and I can't I can't work out how much it's going to end up costing us, but we've just built this enormous lake there, and we just do it piece by piece. So right now we're 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 working with this guy we met. We were down in New Orleans. Um, built because we're building a show down there and we met this guy who is this old burning he's an old burning man guy but he's an incredible artist who recreates these beautiful caravans out of these Spartan Imperial mansions which are these 70 year old caravans that the Getty Aircraft Factory used to make and we've got 11 of these things and I've been saying, right, these are going to be our hotel. You're going to come and stay in one of these Spartan Imperial mansions. So, you know, just designing how that would look in a circus environment in a Mojave Desert context is what we're working on right now um, with this guy in New Orleans. Ultimately, though, those caravans will all come back to Nipton and that will be the hotel component. Um, and then the live entertainment component will be another thing that's pissed over the top of that. And then the hospitality, like we're working on, we'll, 
what does a cocktail bar look like in a town in the middle of the desert? What does the restaurant look like um, that we put in there? And we're working on that at the moment as well. Amazing. Wait, did you just say you built a lake there? Yeah, yeah. We we well, we had the we had. I mean, it's hard. It was a you could call it a pond, but it's a hundred feet wide. It's it's twenty five feet deep. It's massive, and that was the. I just said this is like. This is a desert town. It needs, and, and the oasis is disastrous. We need to rebuild the oasis. So we spent a ton of money and we created uh, uh, this. It, it's filtered by ozone and UV light. And we created this whole natural ecosystem pond that exists there now, which, you know, I swam in a few weeks ago and it's, it was fucking freezing. But in the middle of summer, it is. You could just sit in there for like six hours, and it's so beautiful. That's amazing. And how did you find this this property, this place? You said that you use it to test and to innovate. Yeah, yeah. We found it. We stayed there about probably six years ago on a, a, a strategic retreat. You know, we just use we go away to weird places that we find and spend two or three days there and dream up the new things. And we were sitting out there doing that. And then during COVID, someone said, you know, that company, there's this company that bought bought the town called American Green, and they're going to turn it into a weed resort where you could just go, I guess, and smoke weed and hang out. And like Californian state or someone said, no, you're not. And so they went bankrupt. And so it was just for sale and we bought it during COVID. Amazing. Um, so what else is what else is there that you want to do? Like, I mean, you feel like you've done so much, but is there something still on your bucket list that you want to create or try? I mean, we we really work to the beat of like a new major project every year. And, you know, um, our strategic plan is to, you know, keep building the company for the next 10,000 years. So we're just trying to continually evolve what we do and i want to continually do that for as long as i can so um you know we're looking at projects in other in overseas markets we've still got new orleans and vegas to open there are two new projects here ultimately i live in new york i would love love to have a project in new york and we're very close to doing that um, we were almost shaking hands on a deal with Rockefeller Center to build a big theater and restaurant. Um, and then, you know, COVID hit um, and everything changed there. So, you know, but that's fine as well. Ultimately, we'll find the right place for it. I don't even know if Midtown in New York is the right place for it. Um, I would love to do something in New York. Uh, I would love to do something in Paris and in Tokyo. Uh, and, um, you know, but we're in, a no, we're in no hurry to expand. Um, we just want to move at the beat of, of a drum that makes sense for what we're doing. We're not looking to just scale. We're not some, you know, startup entrepreneurial company which is aiming to 10x our revenue so we can sell our business or anything, you know. Cirque du Soleil tried to buy us a few years ago and we said, no, we're not for sale. You know, we don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, we, it's too much fun, you know, to create a corporatized structure out of it all. We've got to keep it 
we've got to keep the intimacy and the fun of the whole experience. Yes. And you do have a partnership with Caesars, right? Yeah. For Caesars, we're doing the disco show, Atlantic City and uh, New Orleans. New Orleans. Oh, so New Orleans uh, is happening. Yeah. And they, they, they have Caesars Palace, which is just being rebuilt at the moment in, in New Orleans. And obviously we have absinthe at Caesars Palace in Vegas, which is an enormous success there. Right, right, right. Um, that's that's all, and, and that's kind of cool that you know you're infusing stuff into New Orleans and in Atlantic City. Are there other kind of smaller markets? I know you mentioned New York, which is obviously a major metropolitan city. But like, are there any smaller markets that you would like to try? You know, try your craft in. You know, um, I really love New Orleans and. I think Atlantic City is going to continue to grow for us and be, be really successful. I think it might, you know, it might take two or three years to really hit where we're going, but you can just feel the momentum there. But I'm not necessarily looking for more places in, in uh, North America. I did, uh, you know, we did a show in, I think it was 2015 in Tokyo. Uh, I, I just came back from uh, Tokyo. I'd love to do something there. I think that's an enormous opportunity. Great sensibility, similar to our kind of sense of humor there. And uh, just an enormous city, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And enormous is not necessarily better. You know, in a way, I think New York is kind of harder than anything else. Yeah. Uh, it, it used to be, I used to know how to promote here. Now it's a lot harder. You can't just book an ad in the New York Times and everyone sees it, you know. So, but the other side of that coin is if you do something incredible, you don't have to do anything. Um, you know, my friends, my friends who launched Sleep No More in New York, you know, a decade ago, and I don't think they've ever taken an ad. You know, this thing just is so great. It just sold out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a crowded marketplace, right? So how do you stand out? Mm. And how do you try to, I mean, you have, going back to the circus town that you're creating, how are you involving local residents and like, you know, your neighbors in that town and to really create something that will be a destination of its own? Um, you know, we're really, we really, trying to create something that will be many things to many people. Right. So, that you know, we, we actually have an, uh, as part of the town, we have an RV park, which has about 30 residents. So, you know, what they needed was new sewer and new power lines. So we redid the sewer and redid the power, the power lines, you know, because just to make it more comfortable, we're rebuilding the laundry for them. Um, our other neighbour is the Mojave National Preserve. And we, we created this thing called Moopapalooza, which is loop is matter out of place. It's a, an old concept that Burning Man adopted. But, you know, where we just go out in the desert and collect rubbish because the desert is full of rubbish. So we work with them, um, you know, and, and then our other, our other neighbours out there are mines and um, they're really, really excited. We're there. Like they gave us all the rock to help us rebuild the rebuild the pond um, and they're helping us because we're re the, the landscape is kind of scarred by by development in the past and we're re-establishing the desert landscape by putting in the bush again so you know they help a lot with that because they're used to mitigating what they do when they mine so and you know, we just get out and talk to everyone and we're not in an enormous hurry we just do each piece as it goes our next piece is like 
we have a five-bedroom motel and we're rebuilding the roof on that. Um, we have a large piece of art that we're building called uh, the, it's from the Burning Man in about, about eight years ago um, called the Jellyfish, which is about 30 feet high on this enormous pylon you go up into. So we're working out when we can put that up with the, with the artist who designed that. And we're just going through piece by piece as we can afford to make the development. Um, we've got to re restore our solar farm, which you know needs about $2.5 million of investment. But then our, our power needs are totally taken care of, so we don't need any grid power whatsoever. Um, there's a lot of different infrastructure and creative projects. And we've got a number of other artists, like a friend of mine, Matthew Day Jackson, this incredible crypt-like art, artwork in Iceland for one of his clients, and I was talking to him. We've got an old TNT bunker underground, and I said, right, this is for you, Matthew. You've got to come out and build an artwork in this. Um, so, you know, just adding those unique pieces of art is also really, really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. So what is it that you love about what you do and what's most challenging about what you do? The thing I love, the reason I do it is because I'm just so motivated by how much fun it is. And the, the challenge, there's two challenges. One is knowing to say no. It's just like saying, no, look, that is an incredible opportunity and I'm so grateful for that, but it's just not for us. You know, we can't do, we can't do that justice. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the kind of creative companies are just looking for deals. And like I say, we're not looking for deals. Let's just do what we do really, really well and then make it work. Um, and, and I think that's the hard thing. The hard thing, the challenge is just to keep that focus in mind because, you know, you have to be relentless. You have to work so hard. And then you have to fix the things you fuck up yeah. because sometimes you do things and it doesn't work out as you planned. And so you've got to turn around and go, well, how do I fix this? And so I think that and then I find that, you know, you've got to try and explain to your partners, be it like, you know, it might be a resort CEO, a casino CEO who's got 80,000 employees, and then you're just going, no, I don't want to do that. He's going, why do I care about what you think? You know, well, because it's important we get this right because this is the reason people come to Vegas. This is what is unique about Vegas is this thing, this tiny little thing where, you know, it might – might be a restaurant that does 500 covers, but they're going to go back to wherever they come from and say, I've never seen anything like that. And that's, you know, the challenge is to not just phone it in. It's, it's to do something that is always iterating and always making it more exciting. Yeah, 100%. What is one thing that people might not know about you? I mean, I think, I think that thing that I went to school in America, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, that... They all know I'm Australian. They can hear that. Um, oh, I don't know that I, I learned the electronic organ and then I, for about eight years when I was a kid, that was big in the 70s, learning the electronic organ, you know, like a little Yamaha thing. And then I went on to learn the pipe organ after that as well. Nobody knows I played the pipe organ. I love that. That's awesome. And why the pipe organ? Did you have one growing up? I mean, I went to a school and had a couple of them. Okay. And there's actually nothing more awesome than, like, you know, I 
getting in there, you know, before school in the chapel and playing American Pie on the pipe organ. You know, like I used to love the Beatles and they bang out Beatles numbers on the pipe organ before anybody turned up and you'd just be like, this is, it's kind of a power thing or something. Like the whole place is roaring. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. All right, well, I hate to end this conversation, but... For the sake of time, we always end the podcast with the question that is the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way? It's a common thing that I think people say, but I think it's to be relentless and to work hard and no matter how bad it gets, to turn up because you'll eventually get lucky. You've got, uh, I'm assuming people are clever You've got to be basically clever, but if you're relentless and you work hard and you turn up, and that's the the, the, the fact that we came out of being decimated in 2008, you know, on this pier in New York where I ended up having to load out the entire circus myself because I had no more money to pay crew, to going to that, to having a deal at the Fontainebleau in Las Vegas, so then you go bankrupt again. When, when they they went bankrupt and they never paid us or anything, so we're just I'm just like they're going, oh my god. And then, but we were relentless and we came back and did the deal with Caesars, and ultimately that worked out. So yeah, you know, there's disappointments along the way, but you just got to keep going. Exactly, gotta keep pressing on. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was so great to hear your story and. Uh, Hope to get to experience one of your spaces in Vegas at our conference this uh, this spring. Look forward to having a drink there. Yes, for sure. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.